Are you ready to become awesomer? Hello, everyone. This is Umar Hamid, your host, and welcome to the No Limit Selling Podcast, where industry leaders share their tips, strategies, and advice on how to make you better, stronger, faster. Get ready for another episode. Today, I'm privileged to have Alan Gannett, the CEO of TrackMaven, on the show. Alan, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, man. Alan, uh, in 90 seconds, tell us who you are and what you do. Sure. So my, um, my, main, my main gig is I run TrackMaven. It's a marketing insights company based in wonderful Washington, D.C. It's about five and a half years old. We work with brands like, you know, we've worked with MBA, GE, Cisco, Siemens, I mean, a lot of really amazing companies on helping them get the answers from their data. And then I have my first book coming out June 12th from um, Penguin Random House. And it's a book all about how creativity is actually a skill. It's something you can learn, something you can enhance, and something you can get better at. It's called The Creative Curve. And I fully embrace that. Uh, my second book is called <laughs> Ideacution, and it was all about, you know, how do you generate kick-ass ideas and get your team to take a bullet for it? So this is going to be a really great conversation. Love it. So to get a better idea of who you are, who's your favorite superhero and what's the attribute that speaks to you? Oh, my God. Um, I think my favorite superhero is probably... Woo! Um, I would say Superman. I mean, I think, you know, the idea that, you know, he can go in and out of sort of the real world and um, helping people, I think, is really is really important. I think generally as a society, we we tend to like not do a great job of recognizing that I think all people have a lot of potential and all people have the ability to do really amazing things. And that's something he does. He has he's a regular guy with an amazing side. So. That's for sure. What's interesting is there was a guy called Jerry Siegel, and his dad was coming home from work, and he went into a convenience store, and there was a gunman there that was robbing the place, and the gunman ended up shooting him dead. Creating a man of steel that bullets would bounce off him kind of seems like the natural extension, right? Totally. And what intrigues me is that human psyche. And one of the things that we have a lot of hangups around society is that, oh, those people are the creative people and yeah. I'm not creative. So t t tell me about that, that kind of thought process, that creativity is a God-given given gift as opposed to a science. Yeah. So this is the part that I get sort of worked up about. So basically for the book, what I did is I interviewed um, about 25 living creative geniuses. So these are literally billionaires, Oscar winners, Emmy Award winners, Tony Award winners. Um, and, and I also interviewed all the leading academics who study creativity, like all the big names like I interviewed. And here, here's the thing which is crazy. Creativity is one of the most well-studied phenomenons. Like there's tons and tons of research on it. We actually know a lot about how creativity works. And part of how it works is that a lot of creative processing happens in the right hemisphere of our brain. And it's kind of cliche to talk about right brain, left brain. It's actually really important. And so a right hemisphere is where we do more metaphorical processing, where we connect more distant ideas together. <clears throat> and here's the thing. Our right hemisphere does most of its work subconsciously. It only comes to our level of awareness and consciousness when it actually has a fully formed idea 
Oftentimes, you know, our left hemisphere has to be a little less active to actually sort of quote unquote hear what's going on in our right hemisphere, which is why you know, we, hear, we get a lot of ideas in the shower or commute or all these sorts of things. But this is not magical. It's simply biology. It's simply that this type of processing happens to happen subconsciously. And so I think where I get frustrated is like people sort of ascribe this sort of like magical or divine interpretation to this. And the issue is that that, A, is sort of discouraging because people will go, well, if I don't have those moments, I guess I'm just you know no good. And two, it's just untrue because it actually, since it's biology, there's actually a lot of science on how we can actually have more of these aha moments. Brilliant. What's going on in the background? Certainly in the creative sense, we have uh, those epiphanies, but also problem solving. Is it the same mechanism that we use for creativity that gets used for coming up with answers, those inspirations? Yeah. So basically with the type of processing we have, so our left hemisphere is where we do very sort of direct processing. So think about, you know, logical processing, like working through a math problem, you know, step-by-step, you know, figuring something out. That's all very aware. It's very conscious. It's very straightforward. The processing that we're doing to connect new ideas together, those sudden inspiration ideas, those things where it comes to us, that's all happening in our right hemisphere. And that's where, for example, if you're watching a stand-up comedian, you would sort of get the joke, the wordplay, the metaphors, the puns. Your right hemisphere is helping you figure those out. You're not going there. And maybe unless it's like Adam Sandler, you're not going there and thinking like, why is this funny? You just get why it's funny. Um, And so what's interesting about this is that there's certain types of problems that we can solve in either way, either in logical processing in our left brain or in sudden insight on our right brain. And so scientists, how they study aha moments is they use puzzles that can be solved in either way. So for example, a crossword puzzle. Sometimes you're looking at a crossword puzzle and you work out like letter by letter what the word is. And sometimes you look at a crossword puzzle and you go, oh, uh, the answer is green. Yeah, you just know. And what's interesting is those little moments, those little flashes are actually from a biological perspective, the same thing as the big flashes of genius we talk about in creativity. And so scientists actually can use those, use those word puzzles, use those different mechanisms that instigate sudden insight to really understand what is happening when we experience creativity. So I've seen studies uh, with fMRIs where they actually put people in contraptions and actually have them solve those puzzles and figure out what lights up when they get that sudden inspiration exactly. as opposed to the logical part. Exactly. And that's what happens is basically our right hemisphere just goes crazy. And so that's the thing is that for us, like, since we know it's our right hemisphere, we also know there's things we can do to enhance them. So, for example... Um, you know, I talked a lot to Dr. Bowden, who is a researcher who studies sudden insight. He works a lot with Northwestern's Creative Brain Lab. He's done a bunch of really interesting studies on sudden insight. And one of the points he made to me that I think is so important and so simple yet overlooked is you can't have sudden insight about things you don't know anything about. You can have this is an amazing quote told me, but you can't have sudden insight about you. You know, you're not going to have flash of genius if you don't have the knowledge. And so, you know, we talk about, you know, Paul McCartney, for example, you know, waking up with the melody for yesterday or J.K. Rowling, you know, being struck on a train with the idea for Harry Potter. 
And we go, well, isn't that magical? But here's the truth. Uh, you know, Paul McCartney grew up all around musicians his entire life. He constantly was you know, listening to music. He um, literally played in a cover band for years. He was constantly consuming music. J.K. Rowling, you know, to get away from the stressed out relationship between her mother and her father, she would literally, you know, lock herself in her bedroom and just read books and books and books and books. You know, she talks about in her official biography on her website how she had took so many books out of college that she never returned, that she actually had this massive library fine or uh, massive, at least for her and her means. And so, you know, over and over again, you see when you actually look at these stories is that there was a huge amount of consumption that went on. And so, yeah, you don't have, you know, random epiphanies about music or about, you know, ideas for stories, but you also probably didn't consume as much about those topics as they did. And so consumption is actually really important, right? You need the electricity to have a light bulb moment. You need those raw ingredients for your right hemisphere to tinker with, to combine, to bring together. And so in the book, I talk about four things that you can do to enhance your creativity. And I use the stories from my interviews mixed with the science um, to explain what they are and why they work. And one of them, it turns out, is actually consumption. It's actually spending less time creating and more time consuming. Makes sense. It gives you the fertile ground to make those connections. What's the second thing? The second one ties into that. So, you know, consumption is really important, but, you know, some people do consume a lot already. Like they watch a lot of TV, but they're not creating great screenplays. And so how you consume is also actually really important. So the second, the second law of the creative curve is imitation. So what you find when you look at these stories of creative genius is that counterintuitively, all these people actually went through a phase where they were very heavy on imitating. And so, you know, Kurt Vonnegut, for example, his doctoral thesis that he worked on but never actually published, uh, he never finished, and he actually talked about how this was his favorite piece of work, um, is he mapped out the story arc of famous stories and actually would figure out, he found that there's recurring patterns of how stories actually unfold. Um, you know, Ben Franklin learned how to be a great writer, but he would actually outline articles from the Spectator, which was a famous newspaper of the day. It's kind of like the Economist of the day. And he so would outline. Have, yeah. Uh, sorry to interrupt. If I understand correctly, what you're really saying is it's uh, so one consume a lot of raw information and then. Two, the imitation part really gives you the ability to get a meta perspective on it. So you get some mastery around that area that you're leveraging other people's mastery, but learning how to do it. Exactly. So um, one of the things that when you talk about creativity, a lot of it's about timing. It's about developing a type of the right idea at the right time. And one of the things I talk about in the book is that scientists actually feel really confident that um, one of the reasons that people like something is when it's the right balance of familiarity and novelty. It has the right blend of those two things. And so since you need things that are both novel, but not too novel and familiar, but not too familiar, um, imitation actually lets you learn the baseline, lets you learn that sort of structure so that you can create that familiarity and then just focus on the adding that novel twist. So you, for example, um, Star Wars was a Western in space. Right. It was familiar, yes. but novel. 
Um, you know, great chefs go to culinary school and learn the basics, right? They learn how do you make a great omelet because you can't make an experimental omelet if you don't know what most people's expectation of an omelet is. And so imitation allows you to learn that baseline. Okay. And what's the third thing? Um, so the third thing, I'm, by the way, these are like, I'm wildly shortening these because there's a lot more nuance in them. But Thank the you, because we only have 25 minutes. <laughs> yeah, the third thing, there's a whole book on it. Uh, the third thing is creative community. So, um, you know, we think about, um, we think about creative genius as this very independent sort of solo activity, right? We've, we've seen the fast company covers, we've seen the Inc magazine covers and there's, you know, Steve jobs and there's, um, Elon Musk and it's this very individual activity, but like that is obviously not actually true. Like Steve jobs and Steve Wozniak, Elon Musk has literally like thousands of scientists who work for him. And so when you look at stories of creative genius, often there's one person who's front and center, but there's actually a whole creative community around them. It's not just collaborators, but I talk about in the book, there's different people you need in your creative community. One of them, for example, is a promoter. So since timing is a really big element, that means you have to be recognized. So in order to be recognized, you need someone to lend you credibility. And so you see this a lot, for example, in the music industry. Um, in the music industry, you know, um, bigger acts will often have openers for their tours. So Rascal Flatts, um, back in the 2000s, had a young woman open for them. Um, you probably know her. Her name is Taylor Swift. She went on to become incredibly famous. Um, she then started having, you know, Shawn Mendes open for her in 2015, who now has gone on to become incredibly famous. Um, you know, chefs, for example, grow up, they start as, you know, for example, a sous chef and they work their way up in the kitchen and that gives them credibility in a resume so that people will then give them more chances. And so anyway, and I explained there's four different people who you need in your creative community. But basically, the, the sort of short version of that is that it's not an independent activity and it's actually creativity is very dependent on other people. So what are your thoughts about, uh, just before you go to the fourth, what are your thoughts about, uh, I've got a friend of mine, his name's Joel Harrison. He's an artist, a musician, and every once in a while he applies to come to this facility where they have almost like uh, uh, monk-like uh, cells <laughs> where uh, uh, painters, sculptors, musicians, uh, composers all come. They get locked in their little uh, rooms throughout the day to kind of create but in the evening, they have a communal meal together where there's music and laughter and sharing of ideas. So it's almost like work on your craft during the day and you have your meals there. But in the evening, you get this sense of community to kind of create this two or three week resort uh, respite that allows you to focus on your craft and also build community. Kind of your thoughts on that process? Yeah, I love it. I mean, I think one of the things that's important is to separate the literal act of creating something with creativity. Because if I created an exact replica of the Mona Lisa, like if I'm a really talented, fine artist, and I create an exact replica of the Mona Lisa, it would not be creativity. It would be skillful, but it would not be creativity. So creativity yes. is actually something much more complex. And so one of the things that's really important when you think about creativity is that it's not just the act. So Andy Warhol, for example, we would definitely say is creative, but he didn't create most of his own art by his own hand. He maybe directed it, 
He had assistants who did it. Some of it was just screen printed. He would literally, their stories, he would call the factory and say, hey, take a print of this thing and do these colors, right? But a big part of creativity is also the communal aspects, also getting other people to be excited about it, to get people talking about it, to be a self-promoter, to be a marketer, to be a salesperson. And so, yeah, that's why I think, you know, I, I like that. I like the fact that they have both of those things because I think those are actually distinct phases of the process. And the actual creation in of itself isn't the whole story. Brilliant. So what's the fourth element? So the fourth element is iterations and particularly data-driven iterations. So, you know, we think about creatives as, you know, if I'm a screenwriter, I'm going to go off into my writing, you know, cabin or my little office or whatever, and I'm going to lock myself and I'm going to write, 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 and just spend all of this energy on it. And, um, and then I'm going to come out with a finished product. And it's just like the truth is so far from this. I mean, you know, I obviously having a little bit of a meta experience with writing a book. When you write a book, you have, um, you know, you get feedback from people who have reading it. You have feedback from your agent, your editor, copy editor goes through through it. Maybe you have a fact checker. I mean, there's just all these people that are going through and iterating. You think about um, with movies, for example. You know, not only is there a lot of iteration on the script phase, but even on the movie phase, you know, the movie, for example, Fatal Attraction, which went on to win all these Academy Awards, hundreds of millions of dollars in the box office. It did all these test screenings and they found out that everyone hated the ending. And so they reshot the ending. So the ending that we think about as sort of defining Fatal Attraction, the sort of psychotic ending was actually not the original creative product. It was the result of the process. And so that is really important. Uh, the same thing for The Godfather. Like uh, the, the ultimate scene where they have all these murders happening during the christening was uh, an afterthought because the ending oh, that, uh, That's Coppola did, uh, didn't work and it was hated. And uh, uh, the producer basically worked to re-edit the ending, which made it like the iconic wow. ending. I love that. That's amazing. I didn't know that. But yeah, since creativity is about developing the right idea at the right time, you have to really create something your audience is going to want and like and appreciate. And so you can, you know, yourself as the creator, think an idea is as good as you want it to be. But creativity is a social construct. People have to agree that something is creative in order for it to be, because otherwise it's totally subjective. And so and since that's the case, like iterations are really, really important. You interviewed a lot of people. Tell me about one of those interviews, uh, one of those moments during the interviews where it's like, I got this epiphany that was really useful. So who was the person? Yeah. So it's um, something a little bit sillier than an individual person. I spent a day with the Ben and Jerry's flavor development team, um, which yes. is like a phenomenally fun experience. If you ever have the chance to go to the main headquarters and like see it or even just smell it, like it smells like French, fresh ice cream. It's amazing. And it was this really interesting experience because there was this really silly thing that happened that actually made a really big impact on me. So, you know, I was talking to, they call them flavor gurus. It's what they call their R&D team. And yes. I was talking to them and we were sort of like, you know, shooting the breeze. And one of them goes, hey, do you want to try something? And I was like, try what? And they had this like mischievous grin on their face. And they were like, do you want to try dill pickle sorbet? And I was like, uh, what? (laughs) 
And um, they were like, yeah, it's amazing. And I was like, mm, I'm highly skeptical. They're like, no, no, you have to try it. So they, they take some out of the fridge and they scoop me some dill pickle sorbet. Like it sounds terrible. And yes. Oh my God. It was so delicious. Like it was so good. Um, like it was, it was probably one of my favorite ice cream experiences ever. And I guess sorbet is not ice cream, but we'll go with it. And so what was interesting to me, we talked about it afterwards, was that like the point they made to me is like, this is delicious, but no, it would never sell. Like it would never be a successful product. And so that was a big moment for me of sort of recognizing and realizing that the actual sort of like quote unquote quality of a creation and the sort of societal viability of it are actually different. So it's a very silly little example of this, but those two things are actually very different. And so this is why you see some artists who you might say, well, like, I don't think they're very talented, but everyone else seems to think so. And they get a lot of recognition. And so there's a huge aspect around timing and viability. That's a huge untold piece of the creativity story. So this may not be part of the creativity story, but I think to be someone that's building something of note, to pay attention to three things. One of them is to be relevant yes. to your audience. And that speaks to that. The second one is integrity, to really know who you are and that. the criteria you use to make sure you stay on the path. The third one is focus. And it sounds like these creative folks, that iteration process ensures that they are relevant to their audience. Yeah, no, you nailed it. I mean, that's exactly what it is. It's right. It's about you need to spend as a creative a huge amount of time learning what your your audience has already consumed, so that you know what's familiar. You have to learn about the baselines and the structures, so that you can create things that are a little bit novel. And you have to develop a process for like testing and seeing, like, okay, I think this is what my audience is going to be relevant to them, but am I right? And that's where iterations are so, so important. So yes, I think I totally agree with those three. I love the integrity one. That's really, that's really good. And I think on that one, uh, just asking people, you know, what are your values? A lot of times people know them etherically, but not <laughs> uh, specifically. And that's only half of the issue. The other half is, so let me ask you, Alan, you know, in building your company, What's important to you in building your company? Like what has to be there in order for you to know you're doing a good job? Like what's one of the things that needs to be there? It's easy. For me, it's a big one. It's having a positive impact on other people. And so like for me, what I feel super fulfilled on is like when employees get promoted, when they their life quality changes because of you know, doing a job at you know company I you know started, like that feels super fulfilling. And same when customers, when I see like, one of our customers who like learned something or you know, was able to use us to help show and demonstrate how effective they are and they get promoted over it. Like those things are very gratifying. What you did there just naturally is something a lot of people don't do. And that was you identified the value, but you also shared with us the criteria you use to know that you're actually fulfilling that value. And there was evidence coming back from your employees and your customers. And I think they're the two things we need to do and be aware of. Because if you could build companies around those and teach our employees and then let it filter out to our community so our customers know the same values and criteria, that's how you build something that's significant. I love that. Yeah, you, you killed it. 
So last question for you. What inspired you to write this book? Because uh, writing a book is A, incredibly hard and probably the most humbling experience ever is once you create it and you give it to a publisher and they go uh yeah it's unclear what you're doing and change this and change that and it's like oh my god this is the worst experience in the world <laughs> uh, so for me it was i was giving a talk um focused on marketers um four, this is maybe four years ago now that was about how marketers tell themselves the story around creativity and how they're not creative enough and it was a very sort of like surface level talk where I was just bringing out some facts from some of the stories of creative geniuses that people often forget about how hard and how intentional it actually was. And so I was giving that talk. And just to be, I mean, just to be honest, it was like, I saw like, it was like people got really excited about it. Like it was a really motivational message. And I had actually done it more out of frustration. I was like, guys, like, come on, let's get over this. And so I think seeing people get really excited about the message was just for me as someone who really likes having that positive impact was a very rewarding experience and realizing like, oh, this is like a message that um, people need to hear more of and they, they're willing to hear more of. And so the book slowly sort of morphed from a sort of marketing centric book that was more surface level into a, wait, this is, this is a true thing for all aspiring creatives. And actually, oh, wow, there's a ton of science about this. And so the project became, as I sort of got into it, became much bigger than it was originally originally had planned because there's a lot more there. There's a much bigger sort of population that I realized I could affect. And yeah, and that's just super motivating, super fun. It's even been fun with, you know, people have read some of the early copies of the book and like just seeing people get excited about it and motivated by it um, is really, really emotionally fulfilling. Brilliant. Alan, thanks so much for sitting down with me. It was a great conversation. Thanks. I had a lot of fun. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, please go to iTunes and leave a five-star rating. And if you're looking for more tools, go to my website at nolimitselling.com. I've got a free mind training course there that's going to teach you some insights from the world of neuro-linguistic programming, and that is the fastest way to get better results. 